Good evening. How's everyone doing? Good. Fantastic. All right, Ezra chapter 4 tonight. We are going to be, I was saying beforehand um, to Pastor Jonathan, we're going to be moving, we're going to be moving tonight. Uh, we're, going to, we're going to try to get through 4, 5, and 6. Um, a good bit of narrative. We're going to start off a little bit slow, but we'll, we'll quickly pick up, pick up some steam here as we get going. Um, I wanted to share with you guys a... Uh... Y'all good? <laughs> All right. Um, this picture right here, this is called the Cylinder of Cyrus. It uh, can be found at the British Museum, of course, uh, you maybe have seen one of these before. There's quite a few of them from this time period, uh, either Babylonian or Persian time period. This particular one, the Cylinder of Cyrus, can, um, uh, I don't know if I said it already, British Museum in London. You can go see it yourself if you want to. We were there with the family, and uh, we saw all kinds of things. And then when we get back, we realized we missed all kinds of things, including the Cylinder of Cyrus and many other things we wish we would have saw. Um, but it's an amazing place to go see uh, just, just history that they've collected there in London. Uh, but this particular, um, I just want to read you a couple of things that are written on here. First of all, Cyrus, he, is, he says, quote, I, Cyrus, king of the world. So <laughs> he thought quite highly of himself, apparently. Um, it explains the victory he had over the Babylonians in 539 BC, and of course we we see that in the biblical text. Um, we started when we started off in Ezra. We read about the first year of Cyrus, how he um, commissioned uh, the uh, Zerubbabel and uh, Jeshua to go back and begin building the temple. Um, well, it's actually presented on this cylinder. It says that he presents himself as a worshiper of Marduk. Uh, who strove for peace in Babylon and abolished the, the labor service of its population. So some of the slave labor, he abolished that. The people of the neighboring countries brought tribute to Babylon, and Cyrus claims to have restored their temples and to have returned their previously deported gods and people uh, back to their homelands. And so that's, of course, secular history uh, record here. Um, but um, my assumption that the gods and the people, the gods were probably the, the instruments of the tabernacle or the, the temple and uh, those kinds of things that were returned, of course. Um, but kind of, kind of some interesting history there. Uh, we're going to start um, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. And if you remember from last time where we finished off, uh, there was great praise, right? The, uh, the altar uh, was put in place. There was worship that was taking place there in Jerusalem at the altar. Uh, sacrifices taking place. The foundations had been laid. Uh, many people were excited. There was a few old guys, it says, that uh, remembered the glory days from Solomon's temple, and they, they were crying, but nobody could hear them because everybody else was cheering. Uh, <laughs> so there, there was a great uh, excitement in the city there. And, uh, of course, we get to chapter 4, where the adversaries will show up. So uh, we're going to read uh, verses 1 through 3 here. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel 
and the heads of the fathers' houses, and said to them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do. And we have sacrificed to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses of Israel said to them, You may do nothing with us to build a house for our God, but we alone will build to the Lord God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. And um, just as a little bit of background, and Pastor Victor did cover the first two verses here last time, but um, these people that were there were, uh, what I guess we'd probably refer to them as Samaritans in Jesus's time, but they were a combination of the, the Assyrian captivity, some uh, Israelites probably that intermixed with other people that the Assyrians brought in. And so these were the people that were living in the land. Now, we could see in um, Second Kings, towards the end of Second Kings, and hopefully I got this on, excellent. Um, there was a, um, t- talking about this particular group, these Samaritans here, it says, they feared the Lord, yet they served their own gods according to the rituals of the nations from among whom they were carried away. And that's Second Kings 17.33. And, it, you know, right away you say they feared the Lord. That's, that's great. And then you get to the comma, right? So yet they served their own gods. And um, what was happening here in 2 Kings was that um, God had sent wild beasts. It says lions. And they were devouring people, you know, in this part of the, our, part of the, uh, the countryside. And um, they, these people appealed to the Assyrian king. And he said, well, send, send some people from Israel, send some priests in there to explain about the God of this land. And so they learned about Yahweh God, but they just intermixed it. They said, okay, yeah, we fear that guy, uh, but we also uh, were intermixing these other traditions and these other gods that they had picked up along the way. Now, if you look at verse 2 with me, you just kind of go back here and you see Zerubbabel's taking this information in and you know, you think right away, you say, well, this sounds good. Let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do. That's, that's great news, right? And then you see the second part of the verse there, and it says, and we have sacrificed to him since the days of Esar Hardan, king of Assyria. Now, I'll ask you guys the, the question, the scholars here in the room, was it appropriate for them to be doing sacrifices without the priests? or without the temple being in place. So, you know, you could see Zerubbabel, all right, they worship God like us. And then uh, the second part of the, the sentence, you know, comes out and it's like, oh no, they're not worshiping God because God had commanded a certain way of worship and they were not obviously doing that. And um, Zerubbabel, of course, picks up on this right away. It kind of reminds me, I know many of us have had, you know, Mormons or other um, people come to the house and they, they oftentimes will start off and be like, oh, I'm spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. And you go, all right, great. I love Jesus Christ. You know, I follow Jesus Christ too. That's fantastic, you know? And then you get the rest of the story, you know, the, the second part of the sentence. And you say, you know, you, you believe Jesus is God and is the creator of all things and existed from all eternity, is equal in nature with the Father? Oh, no, not that part. But we're good with the rest of it, right? <laughs> he was a good person and all. Um, but anyway, so 
you know, we got to be careful of that. Just like Zerubbabel, be wise to those things that people will um, throw the name of Jesus around, but it's not always the same Jesus. You know, just because they call somebody Jesus, their God, doesn't mean it's the Jesus we follow. And of course, Zerubbabel was faced with that here. And keep in mind, they're facing this, um, this adversity, right? What seemed to be like a high point, you know, where they get to go back to the land, they start building the temple, uh, they begin sacrificing and worshiping, and everything seems to be going well. Um, and then these leaders come up, and there's these, um, probably a desire, I would think, from a fleshly standpoint, to take them up on this. Things are going well. And now we get to expedite the building of the temple, this is fantastic news. And, um, but it's important, um, as it says in uh, 2 Corinthians 6.14, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness? And I know a lot of people will reference this verse when they're talking about getting married. I mean, this is the most common reference I've heard. It's like, hey, make sure they're you know, equally yoked and you're both believers. Uh, but in, and that's certainly true. I don't want to discredit that. Uh, but in chapter 6, he's talking about the work of the ministry and what, you know, all these aspects that go into to the ministry. And then, he's, then he brings this up. And so it's almost the same issue that Zerubbabel faced, where he's like, he's doing the work of the ministry, and now someone's willing to partner with him. And he decides, no, I'm not going to be unequally yoked with that person. So how do we apply that to our lives? Um, we need to be careful about who we're taking advice from, who's feeding us, who's pouring into us, who we're striking up partnerships with um, as we go about our lives. And ultimately, no matter what we're doing, whether we're you know, serving at the church or we're doing ministry out on the street or we're doing ministry at our jobs, it's just being careful who we're yoked with. I can't imagine if... Zerubbabel struck up this partnership, and now the temple is not only to God, Yahweh God, but now the gods, the Assyrian gods, they're like, hey, we have this special thing we need to do on Thursday nights, you know, and sacrifice this pig there, you know, and, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff I'm sure would have took place. And that's what happens when we yoke ourselves to unbelievers is that we're going to be filled with kind of compromise and we're going to have a hard time doing the work of the ministry. Um, oh, let me not get ahead of myself. So let's uh, continue reading. And we'll see in, as we go through uh, verses 4 and 5, we're going to see their real motive show up. You can tell they're not there really to serve God. So verse 4, then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, the king. And um, obviously they weren't intending to do this for the glory of God if they were. And, you, you know, you, you go to partner with somebody and they shut you down and the door is closed, you're not going to try to destroy them if they're, if they're, uh, if they're out serving God. You're just going to go seek God and see where else you can minister, right? And so that wasn't obviously their intention. Um, and so we see they become uh, troublesome. You see this gives this wide span of time at the end here. Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And it's generally believed that's about a 15 to 20 year span somewhere in that ballpark um, that we're looking at here where they were being frustrated. Now, um, what we're going to do 
is we're going to go through, um, you can kind of look in your Bible. Like I said, we're going to cover chapter 4, 5, and 6. And there's several letters that go back and forth between the counselors and the kings. And that's why I kind of wanted to cover it all uh, so we can just get a, an overview perspective of the whole thing. Um, you'll also notice as we're going through this, there's many Persian kings that are mentioned, like Artaxerxes and Ahasuerus and um, Darius, of course, and Cyrus. And we're going to talk about this. But what I'm not going to do, and I've contemplated this, I'm just not settled on it, is a lot of teachers will say, though, this, this particular person is actually Cambius of history, or this person is actually Smyrta, Artaxerxes, or whatever. Um, there's a lot of varying views on this topic. Um, I read one which was really compelling was Isaac Newton did a massive amount of research on this. Uh, obviously, a very intelligent guy put hundreds of hours into it, and a lot of modern scholars don't agree with him. <laughs> but it was actually very compelling, and it doesn't contradict scripture at all. Um, but it's different than what kind of modern theologians think. And after getting through it and contemplating this for a while, I thought, I don't know if this really matters, because I don't know if that's what God really wants from us, is to figure out what secular king this was that they're talking about. And we'll just try to pull the spiritual truths out of the text. And so um, I'm going to kind of avoid that, and we'll just read the kings as they're listed here. Um, Also, as we're going through, if you could just please forgive me, there's a lot of names in here that I struggle with, (laughs) so I'm just going to blast through them. So, (laughs) all right. All right, so let's start out uh, verse 6, and we're going to read this first letter that's sent by the inhabitants um, back to the king um, in in Babylon. All right, verse 6. In the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Artaxerxes, also Bishlam, Mithdareth, Table and the rest of their companions wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia, and the letter was written in Aramaic script and translated into the Aramaic language. Rehum, the commander of Shimshay, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to king Artaxerxes in this fashion. From Rehum, the commander, Shishai, the scribe, and the rest of the companions, representatives of the Dineatites, the Aphrastites, the Tarpalites, and the people of Persia, and Erich, and Babylon, and Shushan, the Dehavites, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Osnapper took captive and settled in the cities of Samaria, and the remainder beyond the river, and so forth. And thank you for the so forth. Um, oh, Snapper, good name for a kid if you're, if you're in the market for one. Verse 11, this is a copy of the letter they sent to him. To King Artaxerxes, your servants, the men of the region beyond the river, and so forth. Let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have come to us in Jerusalem and are building the rebellious and evil city and are finishing its walls and repairing the foundations. Now, let me ask you guys, is there a certain um, uh, sense you get that they uh, don't like what they're doing, (laughs) this evil city? And the other thing I notice in verse 12 is they're talking about, you you remember what they were there to build, right? Right? What Cyrus told them to build was the, the, the temple, right? They were there to build the temple. 
And it, all indications I have when reading through verses, our chapters one through three, is that's what they were doing. They were built the altar, then they were building the temple. But yet here in verse 12, as we just finished that, they were talking about uh, the evil city and the finishing its walls and repairing the foundations. I don't know if they're being totally honest here. <laughs> you know, it's like the, the partial truths are coming out. And then verse 13, let it, be, let it now be known to the king that if this city is built and the walls completed, they will not pay tax, tribute, or custom, and the king's treasury will be diminished. Now, because we received support from the palace, it was not proper for us to see the king's dishonor. How nice of them. Therefore, we have sent and informed the king that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers, and you will find in the book of the records and will know that this city is a rebellious city, harmful to kings and provinces, and that they have incited sedition within the city in former times, for which cause the city was destroyed. We inform the kings that if this city is rebuilt and its walls are completed, the result will be that you will have no dominion beyond the river. Wow, that's such a nice letter. Now, if, if they were being honest, they would have said, because if you, if you look back at what Zerubbabel said, he said they were commissioned by King Cyrus. King Cyrus gave them permission. So if they were being honest, they would have said, can you check the records to see if King Cyrus gave permission? But they never asked that, right? <laughs> they left those little details aside and they said, hey, why don't you check back in the history books? to see if these were ever rebellious people. Well, that's not going to be hard to, <laughs> hard to find, right? Um, so we know, and I pulled out one example here, right at the end, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, when Jerusalem fell, it kind of fell in stages. Uh, they went through, I think it was three times. On the third time, he just leveled the city, okay? And it says in Second uh, Chronicles 36, 13, uh, that... And he also rebelled, and this is Zedekiah that was in, kind of in charge at that time. And he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear an oath to God, but he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. And so, of course, they're going to be able to find this in the history book. And I'm guessing the inhabitants of the land knew that, because it wasn't that long ago, it was 70 years ago. They probably had a record of such. And, um, and so they get this, this letter. Obviously, it had a certain bent towards it uh, against the children of Israel. It does seem to me to have a satanic spin where it's like partial truths are going on, but you kind of spin it, right, to um, get what you want out of it. And, um, and I think this, this representation did, did sway the king in this uh, example here or in this first letter. And so we're going to read the, the response from uh, Artaxerxes. So verse 17. The king sent an answer to Rehum, uh, the commander, to Shimshai, the scribe, to the rest of their companions who dwell in, dwell in Samaria, and to the remainder beyond the river. Peace and so forth. I love, I love that. Verse 18. The letter which you sent to us has been clearly read before me. And I have commanded, and a search had been made, and it was found that this city in former times has revolted against the kings, and rebellion and sedition have been fostered in it. 
There also has been mighty kings over Jerusalem who have ruled over all the region beyond the river and tax and tribute and customs were paid to them. And that, of course, would have been probably David and Solomon that um, accepted tribute from other nations. Verse 21, now give the command to make these men cease that this city may not. Now listen to what he says. This city may not be built until the command is given by me. He never mentions the temple, but I mean, just interesting to me. Uh, verse 22, take heed now that you do not fall to do, do not fail to do this. Why should damage increase to the hurt of the kings? Now, when uh, the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum, Shimshai, the scribe, and their companions, they went up in haste to Jerusalem against the Jews, and by force of arms made them cease. Thus, the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, ceased, and it was discontinued until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. They got a big problem. <laughs> they were there to build God's house, and now by force of arms, they were stopped. And like I mentioned before, that's about a 17-year gap that uh, we talk about where the work continues. Uh, when we get to chapter 5, we're going to start off, I'm going to read verse 1, and um, God's going to send prophets to stir the people, chapter 5, verse 1. Then the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edu, prophets prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the, of the God of Israel who was over them. And God often does this, just like he sends the word of God to us today through the Bible, typically, and through teachers. He sends prophets to the children of Israel to motivate them to get back to the, get back to the, to the work they were sent there to do. Um, I want you guys to turn to, I didn't put these verses up there, turn to Haggai, and um, I'm going to share a little story about a friend. I was thinking about this when I was putting this message together. Um, give you time to find Haggai because it's a very small book amongst the minor prophets. <laughs> but um, I have a uh, a friend of mine. It's actually my dad's my dad's friend. is a business partner growing up. His name's Jeff, and uh, my dad gave his life to the Lord. I was about three or four years old, so I don't I don't totally remember the the pre pre Christ days at the the Bowman household. But um, but it was pretty drastic change in my dad's life. And his business partner's name was Jeff, and Jeff was uh, a heathen, just like my dad. And, <laughs> and um, he's, my dad changed, and Jeff, Jeff noticed that and asked him what had changed, and Jeff eventually gave his life to the Lord. And so he's been walking with the Lord for over 40 years now. And um, he, he, he said something that was pretty impactful to me. He was sharing a story. Uh, one thing that Jeff is very mechanically oriented, and so... He, he built, you know, car engines and stuff like that, fixes bikes and different things. And he was asking God how he can minister to people and share the good news to people. And, and um, the Lord put on his heart to just take a toolkit, uh, you know, bike tools and, and grease and air pumps and patches and go to this town that was next to them. He lives in Colorado. And there's a, it's a refugee community and they bring people in and out. And he said, just go over there and, and hang out with your stuff. 
And when you see a kid with a flat tire, you just say, you want, you know, do you want me to fix your tire? And so he thought he would do that. And, you know, for, you go there once a week and do that. And at first it was kind of a small ministry. He would talk to one or two kids and fix their bike and, you know, grease a chain or something. And it was a blessing to him. And he got to share the, the gospel with these kids. And a lot of them were Muslims. And, um, and this, this was going well. Well, it started to, to pick up pace. And uh, people started hearing about it. You know, hey, this guy fixes bikes. And so soon, soon enough, he was having so many kids come. And it was starting to become rowdy, you know. And he couldn't really minister too well. And people were just asking for him to help and fix things and all this stuff. And so he was driving home. And this is the part that really impacted me. He said, Lord, you have a problem. <laughs> and just that statement said something to me. And it's like what the... Um, children of Israel are facing here, you know, they were stopped by force of arms. And uh, I think they took that on themselves, like, well, I guess there's nothing we can do. And uh, Jeff, instead of putting that burden on himself, he said, you brought me here, you know, and I, I'm not effective in ministering anymore because it's just chaos when I come. And uh, he, he put that burden on to the Lord, and the Lord opened up doors. He um, eventually, he talked to his pastor at his church, and he said, oh, there's other people here that would fix bikes. And there's other people here that want to share the gospel. I wonder if we can just bring them along. And they're still doing the ministry there in the community and, and they fix bikes. And some people just go and share the gospel and, and other people fix bikes, you know? And so uh, he expanded the ministry. It's not what Jeff had in mind, but it's obviously what God had in mind. But I just love the perspective when he told me the story. He said, Lord, you have a problem, <laughs> you know? And, but he just put it on the, on the Lord, the burden. It wasn't his burden, you know, it was God's ministry ultimately. And um, I think, you know, as we look at Haggai, hopefully I give you time to get there. We're going to see that the people after this period of time between chapter four and chapter five were very complacent. They were very comfortable <laughs> in what they were doing. They said, oh, oh well, you know, the, the, we were stopped by force of arms and I guess we'll just do our own thing now and stop the ministry uh, for many, many years. And um, here we find in Haggai, and we're just going to read a few verses. So listen to the sarcasm as I read verse uh, 3 and 4. And this is from the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourself to dwell in paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Don't you love that? It's like, is it, is it that what the time is for you to build your own kingdom, to build your own wealth while the temple lies here in ruins? quite a call out there. Verse uh, 5 through 7, and I, um, I just love how he puts this here. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put in, into a bag with holes. I love that last one. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And uh, don't you love that last one? The, you can just see it. Like your, your, your check, your money's going into the bank account. And then you go log into the bank account and there's no money in there, <laughs> you know? And it's like, where did it go? It's like the bag with holes, you know, and, and they didn't have time to serve the Lord and they were doing all this stuff. They were working like crazy and there was nothing to show for it. And uh, it's just a beautiful picture uh, that he lays out to us here. 
And Haggai and Zechariah, of course, were sent to stir up the people and get them back to doing the ministry that the Lord called them to do. And uh, we can go back to Ezra. Hopefully you kept your place. Ezra is easier to find, so if you didn't, you'll be all right. Uh, Chapter 5, consider your ways. Lamentations 3.40 says, let us search out and examine our ways and turn back to the Lord. And that's what the people were called to do. And we, we, are, we easily make excuses, you know. Um, I've done it plenty of times. You know, when I'm more mature in the Lord, then I'll share my faith. When I have more time, then I'll get into the ministry. When I have more money, then I can, you know, do this or that for the Lord, you know. So... It's easy to find excuses, um, but we are called, no matter where we are, to serve the Lord and be about his business. All right, so Ezra chapter 5, verse 2. So Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtel, and Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, rose up and began to build the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, helping them. What a cool picture. You got all the leaders there, the prophets, the priests, the, the governor, and they're all getting their hands dirty building the house of God. And those are, those are great leaders right there. And um, just, just a neat picture that they jump right back in. They start doing the work of the Lord when they hear the message from the prophets. And you notice they didn't get a command from the king at this point, besides the true king, God, right, through his messengers. They didn't wait on... Uh, Artaxerxes or Cyrus or uh, Darius or anybody. They, they heard from God and they began working. Verse 3. At the same time, Tatiana, here they come, the governor of the region beyond the river, and Shethar Bozna and their companions came to them and spoke thus to them. Who has commanded you to build this temple and finish this wall? Then, accordingly, we told them the names of the men who were constructing this building. But the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews. God was, God was uh, watching out over them and, and um, blessing them in their work so that they could not make them cease till a report could go to Darius. Then a written answer was returned concerning this matter. This is a copy of the letter that Tetiana sent. The governor of the region beyond the river, and Shetha Bosna and his companions, the Persians who were in the region beyond the river, to Darius the king. They sent a letter to him in which was written thus, to Darius the king, all peace. They left out the so forth there. Um, verse 8, let it be known to the king that we went into the province of Judah to the temple of the great God, which is being built with heavy stones and timber is being laid in the walls. And this work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Then we asked those elders and spoke thus to them, who commanded you to build this temple and to finish these walls? We also asked them their names to inform you that we might write the names of the men who were chief among them. They wanted to, to dox them apparently, make sure that they had to, 
have their names written down. Verse 11, and thus they returned us an answer saying, we are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. And we are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and completed. But because our fathers provoked the God of heaven to wrath, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean who destroyed this temple and carried the people away to Babylon. However, in the first year of King Cyrus, or Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to build this house of God. Also the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple that was in Jerusalem and carried into the temple of Babylon. Those King Cyrus took from the temple of Babylon and they were given to one named Shishbazar, whom he had made governor. And just as a point of reference, this would be Zerubbabel, uh, just maybe a Babylonian name for him. Uh, verse 15, and he said to him, take these articles, go carry them to the temple site that this is in Jerusalem and let the house of God be rebuilt on its former site. Then the same Shishbazar came and laid the foundation of the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. But from that time until now, it has been under construction and it is not finished. Now, therefore, if it seems good to the king, let a search be made in the king's treasure house, which is there in Babylon, whether it is so that a decree was issued by King Cyrus to build this house of God at Jerusalem, and that the king send us his pleasure concerning this matter. And so we see um, here that they, again, they were frustrating the the children of Israel, they were trying to call them out. I don't know if they must have expected that they were lying about King Cyrus's decree because they actually called it out here, which is a good thing for them, actually, because they weren't lying. Yeah, King Cyrus did make the decree. Um, and so we'll continue reading verses uh, six, or chapter six is going to be Darius's response. And you're going to see here, uh, we're going to read one through 12, which is the response from King Darius. Not only were they given permission, but just look how much God blessed them. I mean, they took the step of faith when the prophets called them, stirred them up, and they started building. But it's incredible what God does for them here. Uh, chapter 6, then King Darius issued a decree, and a search was made in the archives, where the treasures were stored in Babylon. And in Archmetha, in the palace that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found. And in it, a record was written thus. In the first year of King Cyrus, King, of, King Cyrus issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt. The palace where they offered sacrifice and let the foundation of it be firmly laid. Its height, 60 cubits, and its width, 60 cubits with three rows of heavy stones and one row of new timber. Let the expenses be paid from the king's treasury. Also let the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple, which is in Jerusalem, and brought to Babylon, be restored and taken back to the temple, which is in Jerusalem, each to its place and deposited them in the house of God. Now that was the record that they were reading, right? So verse six, now therefore... Tatiana, governor of the region beyond the river, and Shitharbanza, Banzna, 
and your companions, the Persians, who are beyond the river. Keep yourselves far from there. Let the work of the house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews build the house of God on its site. Moreover, I issue a decree as to what you shall do for the elders of these Jews. For the building of this house of God, let the cost be paid at the king's expenses from the taxes on the region beyond the river. And notice that part. It's kind of funny. You know, it's like, well, not from taxes from the you know, people around me. I mean, the, the people that live next to you, those taxes. Um, so the, the taxes from the region beyond the river, this is to be given immediately to these men so that they are not hindered. And whatever they need, young bulls, rams, and lambs for burnt offerings of the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, and oil, according to the request of the priests who are in Jerusalem, let it be given them day by day without fail, that they may offer sacrifice of sweet aroma to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also, I issue a decree that whoever alters this edict let a timber be pulled from his house and erected and let him be hung, hung, hanged on it and let his house be made a refuse heap because of this. And may the God who causes his name to dwell there destroy any king or people who put their hand to, to alter it or to destroy this house of God, which is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, issue a decree, let it be done diligently." Wow, that's strong. <laughs> that's much stronger than the last decree that stopped them. Uh, they, he was not messing around, that these, these guys weren't going to stop the progress. And we know that they indeed did finish the, the temple very quickly. Um, Jordan, can you put up the verse? I, I skipped over it, but it's important at this point. Thank you. You know which one I was going for. Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord like the rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wishes. And uh, that's encouraging, you know? Sometimes we freak out about our leaders. What, what in the world are they thinking? How do we end up with this guy, you know? Or this gal or whoever. And um, just know at any time, the Lord can make them go and do whatever he wants. And here we see this in Darius, just doing, just blowing their doors off. I mean, everything they could want, the money, the resources, and not only that, don't even bother these people, right? No more, no more sending counselors to frustrate them. So pretty cool how the Lord blesses them. All right, we're going to finish up chapter 6. Then Tetiana, governor of the region beyond the river, uh, she... Shethar, Bozna, and their companions diligently did according to what King Darius had sent. So the elders of the Jews built, and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Edu, and they built and finished it according to the commandment of, God, of the God of Israel and according to the commandment, command of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Now the temple was finished on the third day of the month, of Adar, which was in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. Then the children of Israel, the priests, and the Levites, and the rest of the descendants of the captivity celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. And they offered sacrifices at the dedication of the house of God, 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, 
and as a sin offering for all Israel's 12 male goats, according to the number of tribes of Israel. Now, I'll ask you guys a question. How many tribes were represented in this uh, group that went back to Israel? Who were they? Judah and Benjamin, but I assume there's some Levites there too, right? Yeah, so, so anyways, yeah, so many of the tribes had been taken away by the Assyrians, and of course, but I think it's cool that they still made um, the, the sin offering for all 12 tribes. You know, they were not uh, just concerned about themselves, but all of Israel. And uh, verse 18, they assigned the priests to their divisions and the Levites to their divisions over the service of God in Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. And the um, descendants of the captivity kept the Passover on the 14th day of the first month, for the priest and the Levites had purified themselves, all of them with rich, were ritually cleaned, and they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the descendants of captivity, for their brethren, the priest, and for themselves. Then the children of Israel who had returned from the captivity ate together with all who had separated themselves from the filth of the nations of the land in order to seek the Lord God of Israel. And they kept the feast of the unleavened bread seven days with joy. For the Lord made them joyful and turned the heart of the king of Assyria towards them to strengthen their hands in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. So that's it for tonight. I would just want to close by saying that um, no matter where, you know, you guys know who have been walking with the Lord for a long time, there's seasons in our lives where we can be like the children of Israel during that dry period where you're just focused on yourself and you're not focused on the Lord. And uh, that, I would assume if you walk with the Lord long enough, happens to all of us, right? It's happened to me. I'm assuming that it's happened to many of you. Um, and, you know, to go back to what Haggai said is consider our ways. I think it's even if we think, you know, we're lockstep with the Lord, I think it's good to consider our ways and to make sure that um, we are indeed walking close to the Lord and seeking him daily. Um, I want to read one more verse for you guys, Philippians 1.6. It's, I call it, you know, one of my life verses for a season of my life for sure. Um, Philippians 1.6, and I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. And I did the New Living Translation because that was the Bible I grew up with. And uh, that's how I started reading the Bible. I know people, many people don't like the New Living because it's, you know, a little watered down. I get it. But, <laughs> but I like the, clean, the clearness of this. And it reminds me of a verse that I treasured a lot when I was growing up. And uh, just knowing that when you're in those hard times, that God is still working on you, that he's not done with you yet. He's still working on you, and he's, gonna, he's going to continue to work on you until you are finished <laughs> when Jesus returns or when we go and, and be with him. That is it for tonight. So let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you again for your promises, for your faithfulness towards your people, Lord. We are so grateful. And uh, we ask you to continue to be, uh, to work in our lives, Lord. Thank you for your patience as we struggle at times. And 
I just pray you stir us up and uh, just uh, have us to continue to consider our ways as we uh, go about our lives and the ministries that we're doing to serve you, Lord, that we were, we're faithful in what we do, Lord. And we just uh, lift these things up to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.